This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. We are here for three reasons. First, to honor the 2006 recipient of the Shorenstein Journalism Award. Second, to honor Walter H. Shorenstein himself, who is with us and without whom this would never have happened. And third, not least, to hear the 2006 recipient of the award address us on the subject, China in the World, a view from Beijing. Each year, this Shorenstein Journalism Award honors a distinguished journalist whose body of work has been particularly effective, accurate, cogent, insightful in conveying to Americans the complexities of Asia. The award is made jointly by the Shorenstein Asia Pacific Research Center here in the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University and the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard University. The award consists of a monetary prize, a plaque, and two invitations. The invitations are first to speak about Asia before a public audience, that's you, and second to take part in a panel discussion with colleagues, which will happen tomorrow at noon on the third floor of this building on the subject, not China in the world, but the world in China, rights, wrongs, and reporters. I should note that seating is limited for the occasion tomorrow, so if you'd like to attend the panel, please RSVP through our website. Uh, which is APARC, A-P-A-R-C dot Stanford dot E-D-U, or if you are impaired in cyberspace and prefer to use a phone, that's 650-723-8387. The jury that selected today's awardee consisted of two colleagues who unfortunately could not be with us today, Susan Chira, the foreign editor of the New York Times, and David Greenway, formerly the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe. And three who are here, Alex Jones, director of the Shorenstein Center at Harvard, Orville Schell, dean of the UC Berkeley Journalism School, and myself representing APARC. This is our fifth award ceremony. Previous honorees are Stanley Carno, Orville Schell, Don Oberdorfer, and Nyan Chanda. Before I introduce the person who will introduce this year's recipient, I would very much like to acknowledge with our heartfelt Thanks on behalf of Shorenstein A. Park and the Shorenstein Center at Harvard, Walter H. Shorenstein, friend, benefactor, public-spirited intellectual. I give you Walter. And now to introduce our award winner, here is Orville Schell, Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley. Orville. Well, thank you, Don and uh, Walter uh, and all of you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I really am thrilled to have Melinda here. Um, you know, in considering China, uh, there is very 
there are very few people who actually have watched this extraordinary evolutionary process that this country has undergone over the last quarter of a century. Uh, it is the nature of the uh, foreign press corps in uh, China that they, like diplomats, they come and they go. And there are many uh, wonderful journalists who've had very strong bona fides in China studies and language, but then they sort of matriculate on to some other place, Africa, Boston, you name it. But Melinda is one of those rare persons who has stuck with the story. Uh, she's been based uh, in Taipei, been the bureau chief for Newsweek in Hong Kong, uh, in Beijing. She's now Newsweek's diplomatic correspondent. Uh, but she also has leavened the loaf of her journalism by covering other areas around Asia. In fact, I, would have, I have to tell you, Melinda, I was in Baghdad three days ago, and I pulled up on the web your Newsweek story of sitting in the Palestine Hotel during uh, awe and, what is it, awe, not in, uh, what was the campaign's name? Shock and awe. Uh, and looking across the Tigris River as the cruise missiles came in on the city, and it was interesting to read it in, in, with a little hindsight. And it's also, I think, a, uh, a credit to the kind of journalism you've done that, that even though you do have a great expertise in China, you have uh, ranged quite widely. The China story is so amazing, and uh, uh, Melinda, I think, will say a little more about it tonight, uh, because we, we're, under, we're watching a nation undergo one of the great transitions of, of uh, this century and the last century from a revolutionary Marxist-Leninist society to something else, and that, of course, is the question mark. What is the something else? So, Melinda, it's great to have you here and to, for you to be the winner of the Shorenstein Prize, and the podium is yours. Thank you so much, Orville. Before I start, I just wanted to say how deeply grateful I am um, to be given this honor, the 2006 Shorenstein Journalism Award. I believe that understanding Asia is of vital interest to America and to Americans, and this award is helping further that understanding. So thank you so much, Mr. Shorenstein and everyone else, for making this possible. So the question is, why should we be interested in what's going on in China? Um, let me tell you a little story. Not long ago, I was having lunch, an off-the-record lunch, with a vice minister in China. This was a relatively young, 40-something official, very promising, up-and-coming, but a little bit controversial. His ministry has been in the thick of some political tussling in Beijing, mostly domestic stuff. But of course, as so often happens with China, even internal affairs in China can have immense global repercussions. So what did he have to do with China and the world? The very first thing this vice minister said to me was not about internal politics. It was not about his own ministry. It wasn't even about his own reflections about whether he would be able to stay in office or what he would do in the future. Instead, what he said to me, the very first question he asked was, and I quote, in the United States, who are the front runners for the next presidential election? What do people think of Hillary Clinton? Who else is a Democratic Party contender? And what's the current thinking about Al Gore and his environmental protection initiatives? He kept coming back to another topic, which I, find, I found really telling. 
uh, he, he asked me several times in different ways, what do American politicians and the American people think about the younger generation of Chinese leaders, people like me, speaking of himself? Do they have a good impression of us? And how do you assess this younger generation? I was just stunned when he asked me that and also a little bit embarrassed. And I did have to tell him that I wasn't sure most Americans had given, or, or American officials even, had given that much thought to the, to the young generation of Chinese leaders. Maybe because they didn't know so much about that generation, which is also true. Meanwhile, personally, I was thinking that I couldn't even imagine of an administration official in Washington thinking so far ahead. In the American context, long-term thinking usually means two years down the line, midterm elections maybe, uh, four years if you're really looking far ahead. But for a young Chinese vice minister to be thinking five, 10, 15 years in the future at something, at something happening in the corridors of power in the United States, that was really telling. All the more so, I thought, because this is a guy who has a lot of his own things to worry about, and he himself acknowledged that maybe in the future, maybe in a few years, he wasn't going to be in those corridors of Chinese power for such a long time either. Um, and yet that was the first thing he wanted to know. What do they think of us? And that vice minister isn't alone. Ordinary Chinese are looking beyond their borders in ways that they never did before. After decades of isolation, after 25 years of trying to catch up with everyone else, Chinese are finally beginning to see themselves quite comfortably now as citizens of the world, connected, globalized, traveling overseas, buying foreign goods, drinking Starbucks coffee, eating McDonald's, um, and it shows itself in many ways. For example, when the Chinese tech firm Lenovo purchased IBM's PC unit not so long ago, even the driver in my office was jubilant. He was celebrating. He thought this was a great thing. At last, China's a global player. At last, China has arrived. Now, just that fact alone is not the reason, though, that we should be so, so, so interested in China. China's a hugely complex country, and that's the reason. Size matters, but it doesn't always matter in the way that people think. If you go by sheer numbers, China's always impressive, sometimes in positive ways, sometimes in negative ways. But you need to know the context, too. You need to see some of the nuances, because numbers can be deceptive, even assuming that they're accurate. So let me give you a taste of what I'm talking about, of what I mean. I'll, I, I want to run down some quick numbers, uh, which people like to quote when they talk about China. Let's call it the numbers game. Two trillion US dollars. That was China's GDP in 2004. But there's a footnote. This was only after the National Bureau of Statistics held a press conference to say that they were employing new reporting methods and they found out that the old figures were a little bit off. The earlier GDP figure was actually 17% smaller than the real one, which is something like saying, 
Honey, guess what? I just expanded the economy by $300 million. Um, meaning it's like finding the economy of Indonesia under your pillow or something like that. And yet it can still happen in China. The reason was because the old reporting system had been based on the, the old so socialist centrally planned model. It didn't take into consideration the booming private sector, the services sector. And it was also good news for ch some Chinese economists because it means uh, that consumption, domestic consumption, is actually stronger than what people thought. 2.5 million. That's the number of soldiers in the People's Liberation Army, making it the largest standing army in the world. And of course, people like to quote this number when they, because they, it makes, when they want to make the country seem threatening. But then what about this one? There's a huge income gap, income gap in China, and it can be potentially very destabilizing. 300%. That's how much bigger the average urban wage in China is compared to the average rural income in China. The most affluent 20% of China's population earns more than 50% of total incomes, while the poorest 20% earns just how much? 4.7% of total incomes. Which brings us to the next number, 74,000. That's how many mass public protests took place in China in 2004. And I mentioned 2004 because it was sort of a uh, landmark year when these figures were being announced officially for the first time. Last year's figure was 6% higher. And so what are people protesting about? A large number, possibly the majority, were unhappy because their homes were being demolished or their farmland being taken over to make way for urban development. So how fa fast is that development taking place? With Beijing preparing to host the Olympic Games in 2008, the city is on a, an incredible building binge. And I know many of you have been there to see it yourself. It's, it's, you have to see it to believe it. Beijing is constructing three dozen sports facilities and other Olympic venues, 6,440 kilometers of new roads, residential housing equivalent to 22 World Trade Centers, 700. That's the number of multinational research and development centers in China today, compared to fewer than 50 just eight years ago. 59%, that's how many Chinese undergraduates are pursuing science and engineering degrees, compared to 32% in the United States. 600 billion. That's how much American consumers are saving because they're buying cheap Chinese imports. Recently, the mainland edged out the US to become the world's number one exporter of information and communications technology. Yet, China still lags significantly behind America as a tech leader. 80% of the mainland's high-tech and patented, patent exports last year were produced by who? By foreign controlled firms. Investment from multinationals such as Motorola, Nokia, Cisco Systems, Microsoft, has, have driven much of China's high-tech growth. So that's a picture, a snapshot really, of China by the numbers. A growing, increasingly muscular nation, yet with so many flaws and contradictions and weaknesses. In foreign policy too, 
you see great change, uh, some of it, again, open to interpretation. Chinese diplomats are acting much more proactively than they've, they've ever done before. They're hosting six-party talks in Beijing, uh, attempting to resolve the North Korean nuclear crisis. They're voting to refer Iran to the Security Council when, in the past, Beijing might have preferred to just simply abstain. Chinese officials are globe-trotting all over the world, from Sudan to Burma to Latin America to Central Asia, seeking to win friends and influence people and, by the way, to sign a lot of oil and gas deals. For us, Americans, a key, a key question is the future of the Sino-U.S. relationship. Is Beijing a threat to the United States? Will the rising power of China seek to supplant the American superpower? Some people think so. We've all seen those books with titles like The Coming Conflict with China or the seminars about America's coming war with China, a collision course over Taiwan. People ask me all the time, including my 90-year-old father who's here tonight, whether there's a battle looming between China and America. To tell you the truth, I don't really know, and I don't think anyone really knows for sure. The reason is this. We, right now, you and me and the crowd in Washington and people like the vice minister in Beijing that I had lunch with that day, we're in the process of determining the future of Sino-U.S. relations. The template for, these, for this relationship is currently in great flux. It's, it's not set in stone. What is being said and done and not done and decided in the White House and in the Zhongnanhai leadership compound in, in Beijing are what will determine whether these two great countries will be friend or foe. Here's how things look from Beijing's perspective. We've all heard a lot of talk about the usual suspects that might derail Sino-U.S. relations, such as Taiwan, the trade imbalance, intellectual property violations, human rights abuses, the North Korean nuclear issue, and so on. First off, I want to say a few words about issues that people don't talk about so much, but which could, which could also play a significant role in exacerbating frictions between China and America. Things like the war against terror and its aftermath. Things like China's use of multilateral groupings to try to protect its foreign policy interests. Things like the revival of a modern-day great game in the nooks and crannies of Central Asia. Basically, the post-9-11 honeymoon between China and America is finished. Four years ago, U.S. and Chinese officials had joined hands together in the war against terrorism. Beijing stood by pretty calmly, all things considered, as U.S. troops and air bases proliferated in Central Asia, literally surrounding China's backside. But now Beijing authorities are starting to push back against what, they, what some see as America, America's encirclement. Okay, let's make one thing clear. Beijing is not seeking direct, direct confrontation with the United States. At the moment, Chinese authorities tend towards the geopolitical end run. They like to work through multilateral organizations. Take, for example, the East Asian Summit, which was inaugurated in Kuala Lumpur in December. Sixteen of the re region's major players, from Japan to the, to the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, 
from India to Australia were represented there, but not the United States, partly though not totally by Chinese design. When it became clear, however, that US officials were miffed at the perception that Beijing had excluded them, a Chinese me message came through informal channels saying basically that China has no objection to allowing US representatives as observers to the summit. The Chinese aren't interested in domination. We do not seek hegemony, is what Ambassador Wu Jianming, one, one, once one of China's savviest and most senior diplomats, now he's the president of the Foreign Affairs University, which is running the track two work on the East Asian summit. Instead of using the language of conflict and confrontation, he kept stressing how interdependent China and the US have become. In fact, the US 7th Fleet will remain the dominant, the dominant military power in the Pacific for some time to come. Meanwhile, if you look at it, five of the East Asian summit members are actually former treaty allies of the United States. In the Pacific, the Chinese message is not Yankee go home. Instead, the East Asian Summit is intended to help lead the region towards something like the European community, a regional trading bloc, perhaps with some degree of integration in economic policies. Chinese officials say they want Southeast Asia to take the lead in this process. But of course, it will also protect its own interests in the region with great determination. The EAS, as it's called, is one of the newest in a string of regional groupings that China has either helped initiate or is, is seeking possibly to co-opt. The six-party talks over, Be over Pyongyang's nuclear, um, over Pyongyang's nukes are hosted in Beijing. Here, more often than not, when the group splits into two camps, representatives from the United States and Japan find themselves facing off against China the two Koreas, and Russia. Paradoxically, Beijing and Seoul are usually seen as the closest comrade-in-arms in these negotiations, despite the fact that South Korea remains a formal treaty partner with the US and continues to host American troops. But China's boldest challenge to US inroads in Asia are probably in, in Central Asia. Here, look for one of the most esoteric of these multinational, multilateral groupings, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or SCO. It was formed in June 2001, note the date, before 9-11, by China, Russia, and five Central Asian countries. Though, as its name suggests and it has, as it's turned out, Beijing runs the show in the SCO. In the beginning, Washington poo-pooed this group as an acronym searching for an agenda. Then, by, winter, by the winter of 2001, the U.S.-led coalition had toppled the Taliban, co uh, had toppled the Taliban and occupied Afghanistan, which, which does, by the way, share a border with China. To support the Afghan war effort, Washington stationed troops at an airbase in Kyrgyzstan and at Uzbekistan's Kharshi Khanabad airbase, which is nicknamed K-2. Tajikistan offered U.S. and NATO aircraft overflight rights. Suddenly, U.S. troops were all over Central Asia, and some officials in Russia and China felt that Washington had, had essentially pulled a fast one on them. Then came the so-called colored revolutions. Now, what is that? 
um, because of the names given to them, the Orange Revolution, the Tulip Revolution, Chinese officials now refer to the street protests that helped topple autocratic regimes in Georgia and Ukraine as colored revolutions. Alarm bells went off in Beijing when civil unrest broke out in the Kyrgyz capital of Bishkek a year ago. There, protesters stormed government offices and sent the president into exile. Kyrgyzstan is right next door to China. The Bush administration's support for these colored revolutions convinced some jittery Chinese officials that regime change was as much a U.S. goal as counterterrorism. Such concerns intensified in both Beijing and Moscow when, in May of last year, 10,000-some protesters rampaged through the Uzbek city of Adijan, Andijan, and the Karimov government cracked down hard. Some 750, 750 protesters died, most of them unarmed civilians. Against this tumultuous backdrop, China's president, Hu Jintao, and the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, met in the Kremlin in early July. They agreed that if unchecked, these colored revolutions might sweep away Central Asia's traditional strongmen, leaving both Beijing and Moscow with their soft underbellies exposed. Hu and Putin issued a strong joint statement that was a thinly disguised warning to the U.S. Don't meddle in, in other countries' affairs. A few days later, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization members held a summit in Kazakhstan. There, for the first time, the group urged an explicit timetable for the withdrawal of U.S. coalition forces from Central Asia. Of course, as you might expect, Washington didn't take this sitting down. Within days, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld was shuttling to Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan on a surprise visit, intent on extracting promises that U.S. troops would be allowed to stay. After being, being offered a hefty chunk of U.S. assistance, the Kyrgyz president, Karmanbek Bakayev, backtracked on the SCO declaration and announced U.S. troops were welcome after all. But Washington wasn't able to get Uzbekistan to back down, and in July, Karimov ordered the U.S. out of the K-2 base. If the question is whether the U.S. and China are headed for a geopolitical clash, Part of the answer is unfolding in those little understood regions of Central Asia, where U.S. advances to, since 9-11 are seen as an encirclement strategy by some Chinese authorities. Let's not forget another key player in this geopolitical picture, and that's Japan. One of the remarkable things about living in Beijing, as I do, is that you can wake up each morning and find something quite unexpected is erupting in the city or sometimes very close to you. One day last spring, that surprise for me was 20,000 demonstrators marching through Beijing, converging on the Japanese embassy, which happens to be just a couple of blocks from my apartment. They included students, they included older people, they included fashionably dressed yuppies, but their language was quite emotional. It was an anti-Japanese protest, and things turned ugly. The demonstrators shattered windows at, the, at Tokyo's embassy, vandalized cars, and stoned shops. 
The outcome of the Sino-Japanese spat could impact not just the region but the world. Nationalism is on the rise in both countries and neither Beijing nor Tokyo have much room to maneuver. There are many prickly issues, many, many of them. The one that happened to be uh, the proximate cause of last year's protest was the belief by many Chinese that Japanese textbook revisions were whitewashing Tokyo's World War II record. But this isn't about ancient history, or it isn't only about ancient history. It's also about which of these two countries will dominate the future of Asia or represent Asia. It's about two giant economies competing for energy supplies. It's about China trying to prevent what it sees, again, as Washington's encirclement strategy with assistance from Tokyo. This is a key turning point in Sino-U.S. relations for some of the same reasons that it's a pivotal moment in the Sino-U.S. relationship as well. Now maybe some of you are asking, so what's new about this picture? Japan and China, they've been going at each other's throats since the 1930s or even longer. Well, there is a new element, just when you thought you knew everything. Now there's, Japan, there's China's voracious appetite for oil and gas supplies and the growing competition between Beijing and Tokyo for energy resources and secure transport routes for those energy supplies. A couple years ago, Beijing was miffed when Tokyo played the spoiler in a multi-billion dollar Sino-US proposal that would have seen Russian oil flowing through a Siberian pipeline to the Chinese oil city of Daqing. Last year, Tokyo announced it would grant commercial oil and gas drilling rights in an area of the East China Sea, northeast of Taiwan, that may hold up to 200 billion cubic meters of natural gas. China's already racing to develop gas fields near the Japan-China median line in the East China Sea, which J Japanese media have dubbed the, quote, sea of conflict, unquote. Tokyo insists that Chinese drilling on Beijing's side of the line will extract undersea resources claimed by Japan since the gas field straddles the line. Then there was this little reported cat and mouse encounter on the high seas, which became the closest thing to a Sino-Japanese military confrontation in decades. Japan's self-defense forces detected a submerged Chinese nuclear-powered submarine lurking in its territorial waters, again, not far from undersea natural gas fields that both sides are racing to exploit. The Japanese personnel pursued the sub for two days and demanded an apology from Beijing, which the Chinese ultimately gave. Now, the interesting thing is in the past, Tokyo normally took a confrontation-averse posture. They might have been expected to simply keep quiet and let the submarine go on its way without, you know, without any making a, a big fuss about it. Instead, this time, Japan took chase. So look at this from Beijing's point of view. They, the authorities there feel that Tokyo has shifted to a more confrontational stance vis-a-vis -vis China. There are many reasons for this. For the first time, Japan issued a defense white paper specifically naming China as a threat to the region. Then, in an unprecedented joint statement, Tokyo joined the U.S. to declare, in essence, that Taiwan's current status of sort of de facto independence was a vital security interest. In contrast, of course, Beijing calls Taiwan an internal Chinese matter and insists that the island must reunify with the mainland by force if necessary. 
Japan also sided with the U.S. against moves to lift the European Union's 16-year-old arms embargo against China. From Tokyo's perspective, the anti-Japanese protests seemed timed precisely to sabotage Japan's aim to become a new permanent member of a revamped United Nations Security Council, along with Brazil, Germany, and India. These would be added to the permanent five. Chinese officials insist that Tokyo, as Premier Wen Jiabao put it, must face up to history first before it can join or even think of joining the Security Council. Now, Wen Jiabao is normally quite moderate in his statements. He made this comment on a trip to New Delhi, and the tough talk contrasted strongly with what can only be described as a charm offensive by one in India, even though New Delhi is also seen as a potential rival to China, particularly in the region. But one was extremely polite to his Indian hosts. He stressed that Asia's two giants should complement, not compete against one another. Obviously, the Sino-Japanese relationship could do with a little of that confidence-building mood music. Japanese officials respond to China's criticisms by saying Tokyo has already expressed its profound regret and apology to neighboring countries over what happened in World War II. What's more, Tokyo has given China more than $34 billion in the form of concessionary yen loans, seen as war reparations in all but name. And yet, the Chinese media doesn't often dwell on or even mention Japan's largesse. Even so, Chinese and Japanese officials have potent reasons, such as $200 billion in two-way two trade, to diffuse these tensions. The hope is that this strong economic relationship can bring both sides to the table. China's surpassed the U.S. to become Tokyo's top trading partner, and Japanese firms employ an estimated one million Chinese, including 50,000 working for Panasonic alone. But some Chinese authorities see some advantage in keeping Japan on the defensive and at a distance. In recent years, we've seen the Beijing government playing the nationalism card, partly to compensate for its own lack of legitimacy. What is the glue that holds Chinese together these days? Marxism is dead as a motivating ideology there. Its successor is the philosophy that some call money worship. And even though it's a testament to the enthusiasm with which Beijing has taken to market economics, it's also spawned a huge gap between rich and poor that's beginning to create social unrest. Only the icons of a strong China, such as the 2008 Olympics, or sending an astronaut into space, or winning a high-profile sports competition, seem to be guaranteed crowd-pleasers on the mainland these days. And yet, having unleashed the beast of nationalism, Beijing now has to stay on top of that tiger, to keep riding that tiger. Protests that target Japan at the outset, or indeed any other country, can easily wind up attacking other targets, including gov government corruption, lack of free speech, the Tiananmen crackdown in 1989, which rem remains one of the biggest taboos in China. Uh, and it reminds me of the tail end of those anti-Japanese protests in Beijing last year, when some demonstrators in the embassy district began shouting, let's march to Tiananmen Square, which is not that far away. You can walk. Big taboo. 
um, a decade and a half after the Tiananmen crackdown, uh, protests in the square just don't happen or very rarely happen. Or if they, there's a whiff that they might happen, uh, it's quickly deterred. So you can imagine, police scurried to block these marchers from heading towards Tiananmen. They were on their way. They were in lines and milling about. Instead, the police herded them back into the diplomatic district so that they could walk a second time past the Japanese embassy and, and, and sort of blow off some steam. Okay, protests are no longer so rare in China. We've seen all the headlines. These days, the poor and the underprivileged often hit the streets, waving tattered banners, shouting in thick rural accents. But the anti-Japanese protests were unusual in one regard. This was the first time in six years that demonstrators had poured out of the prestigious university district called Haidian in such numbers. And they were not down and out farmers, but rather the pampered sons and daughters of China's urban elite. They were the same types of demonstrators who rampaged through the diplomatic district in 1999 and trashed the American embassy after US-led NATO forces bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. You can see how easily um, this sort of public unrest can change its target and why the leadership in Beijing is playing this nationalism card because it's a no-brainer. It, it, it helps them. It, it possibly could even bolster their regime, help it last longer. So the question is, is China bound to become a global hegemon, bullying smaller countries with its size and economic clout, encouraging nationalism because that's the only glue or the strongest glue to hold this society together? Is a U.S. conflict with China inevitable, brought on by, you name it, Taiwan, Sino-Japanese frictions, or even some little understood incident in far off Central Asia? I say no. I say these scenarios are not written in stone. But the time to ensure that these gloomy prospects do not unfold is right now. Of course, we have to stand up for American interest, be it fighting for intellectual property rights protection in the Chinese market, be it greater human rights on the mainland. Um, we, know, we know the laundry list. But these positions must be taken with thought, with reflection, and with long-term planning. U.S. administrations aren't always famous for long-term planning and strategic thinking. In America, even at, even at the top, it's okay to say, I don't do vision or I don't have that vision thing. But just remember that the Chinese, at least some of the Chinese do. One day that vice minister I had lunch with might be a Politburo member or even the leader of a budding democratic movement. Either way, when he gets to where he's going, he will have thought about the Sino-US relationship for decades. We and our leaders should start thinking about it too. Thank you very much. We have two items left on the agenda. We have a Q&A and then after that we'll present the plaque to Melinda. She's graciously agreed to accept questions or comments. If you have such, 
please identify yourself by name and affiliation, if any. Any questions? Yes, Alex. I think there are mics, yeah. Melinda, you want to stand up here so we can respond? Just uh, yesterday in Washington, the heads of the major uh, information companies, Google, Yahoo, Microsoft, so forth, were given a thorough dressing down by members of a congressional committee, Democrat and Republican. And most striking to me was the language that they used, which was to excoriate these people for cooperating with China in its efforts to control information and comparing that to cooperating with Nazi Germany. That is language in this country that is extreme. When you, th when you th see the way America is explaining itself through the media in China, what do you see about how we are perceived and how would you char characterize the way the Bush administration has sort of handled diplomacy? I can tell you that a lot of Chinese think of one word when they think about uh, the Bush administration's um, actions or the, the ones they know about anyway, and that word is hypocrisy. I just have one thing to say about, about this whole Google-Yahoo collaboration issue, which is, um, uh, of course, you know, I curse these companies every day when I'm in China trying to surf the internet and run into problems. Um, and I especially regret when I hear a, 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 an American company has somehow provided information to Chinese authorities that lead to a Chinese blogger or internet author to be put behind bars. To me, that's an active, uh, an active thing that American companies have done that, that's unconscionable. Um, but on this question of you know, Google Lite in China or, or Cisco Systems you know, providing technology that helps the Chinese internet police do their thing. My question is, we hear about these incidents in China, but do we hear about all these incidents that happen everywhere? Can we be so sure in the United States that, that something similar isn't happening to us here? Um, I, think, I think a lot of Chinese citizens, when they, when they look at this, I mean, even, you know, even people who want to be on the internet, go any, anywhere, do anything, see anything, download any content, you know, when they see things like the sorts of abuses that took place in Abu Ghraib, what's taking place in Guantanamo, um, you know, even, I mean, obviously Iraq is the worst example, but um, even Afghanistan, which is now looking worse than it had been initially after, after the fall of the Taliban, um, I think they, um, I think Chinese, even if they don't say it because they can be very polite sometimes, they're always just sort of scratching their head going, uh, how can you talk to us about human rights abuses? You know, look at what you do. And, and um, you know, in that regard, this thing with the American companies, they're, we look at the internet because it's such a part of our lives now. But I think Chinese citizens just assume that American companies across the board have probably made compromises um, 
have been uh, somehow complicit simply to do business in China. Um, one thing we do know is that, at least in the beginning, and certainly to some extent still now, uh, one condition for certain types of joint high-tech joint ventures is tech transfer. Um, if you want to sell nuclear power reactors to China, you have to let a Chinese engineer sit there beside, you know, the, the seller, the technicians, and see what that guy's doing. Um, of course, you don't want to give up the software, the proprietary stuff, but uh, you can be sure that they, are, that they want that stuff as well. Um, I think this issue is a lot bigger than simply um, look at what Google's doing, look at what look at what Yahoo is doing. Uh, and also, what they're doing is not necessary. It, yes, it does, it's especially this Google Lite business, you know, creating a, a, a Google version for Chinese that uh, doesn't have these naughty words like Tiananmen or dictatorship or uh, riot police or my favorite, freedom. Uh, if you really want to get around that, and I know Chinese who who have the means to do it, it that such things are not an obstacle. There are ways. There are proxy servers. Um, I know a hacker, a, a very proficient Chinese hacker, who doesn't even—I mean, he doesn't blink an eye. You know, this is a guy who trolls around the Pentagon's computers and downloads all sorts of stuff. Uh, it's, that's not stopping him. What it seems to be doing and I don't think the Chinese authorities um, planned it this way, uh, this sort of constrained internet access, I think, uh, reinforces the sort of nationalistic sentiment that we're seeing in China now. How? Because if you go looking for information that's critical of China, you don't see as much as, as there is out there. And yet, if you go looking for for content that's critical of Japan, that's critical of the United States, that shows China in a good light, that shows China, you know, uh, to be doing all these wonderful things, you see that easily. And in a very subtle way, I think it encourages people, some people, young people maybe, to feel like other countries are really bad and China's doing great. Um, and again, I think many in the older generation know more, you know, they, in their gut, they, they know that that's not the real world. But if you're young and you spend all your time on the internet, that's probably there. And when you look at, when you look at chat rooms on the internet, you will see this come out. Bloggers in China, it's free speech, but it's not always the free speech that we would like to see. There's a lot of very nationalistic stuff out there, and some of that is also, uh, it, it, when it gets to be very um, emotional and volatile, Chinese authorities even even have begun clamping down on that, which is, that, uh, interestingly, that's something new since the, the anti-Japanese protests of last year. Now you see a lot more uh, policing of the, the so-called patriotic groups in China who, who sometimes post some very, very provocative and anti-Japanese uh, content on the web. I think the authorities have woken up to the fact that uh, that sort of internet content is feeding some of these protests that so easily could get out of control, and that's worrisome to them. So, so now we're seeing a little bit of an attempt to monitor. It's a very complex situation.
Thank you. Uh, I have a question about uh, Indo-Chinese relations. Um, the U.S. would like India to, as part of its strategy, to look east and to help it manage uh, in the long term its relations with China. Um, and the argument behind that is India is a democracy and will remain so, etc. and so on. How are the Chinese uh, how is the Chinese government likely to react to a more aggressive uh, Indian approach in Asia? If they think India is simply being a proxy for the United States, I think you'll you'll see some very aggressive countermeasures. Um, China and India have, have been neighbors and sometimes enemies, you know, over the decades. Right now, there's a deep reservoir of goodwill among Chinese and Chinese officials towards India. But it, that's based on these two countries on their own merit. If they see that there has become uh, a sort of axis, you know, US, Japan, Delhi axis, um, I think you'll be seeing some much more assertive defensive measures. And, and some of it is already happening in around the Indian Ocean, which of course is a is a major uh, concern for China because so much of its oil supplies you know, pass through there. Um, there's a there's a quite a heated battle between China and India to in, to have influence in Burma. Of course, China's an overwhelming presence in Burma at the moment, but um, all those countries, uh, Cambodia, Thailand. Uh, you, you see a lot, of, a lot more attention from the Chinese now, and, and that has a lot to do with India. Um, I think it could be quite risky if Washington got its way and the New Delhi-Washington relationship got quite as intimate as the U.S. would like, because then, then you've got like a second Sino-Japan-type issue happening with China and India, and I think uh, you know, there's enough in history, you know, should that uh, come about, that Chinese officials would, would also feel quite threatened. Uh, the U.S. administration has often criticized China for not doing enough, not using its leverage with North Korea. Um, I think Chinese authorities are doing more sometimes than, than what they're being uh, credited with. But it's, all, it's a carrot and stick thing. It's not, you know, it's not just we're going to take this away, we're not going to give you oil, we're not going to give you food, we're going to do this on the border. It's not just the stick. China's trying to entice North Korea to reform its economy. Um, Kim Jong-il came to China and, you know, Beijing authorities, they do what, what they can to, uh, to make him feel comfortable. And one of his demands is that nobody should be allowed to know he's there until he's gone. So you have these very uncomfortable situations of Japanese and Korean journalists running all around the White Swan Hotel in Guangzhou, you know, distant sightings of a bouffant hairdo in the lobby, 
and of course it's Kim Jong-il and of course he really was there and he was traveling by train as he as he almost always does and it's not you know the Chinese authorities were very uncomfortable questioned intensely and finally they admitted yeah he was there he was here and what was he doing they were showing him all the things you know that China has achieved since market reforms started taking place you know the the multi, you know the multinational factories the special economic zones the high tech areas um and basically saying all this can be yours too if you just reform and be a good boy maybe it's having some effect i mean certainly we've seen uh, private private uh, a little more private enterprise in north korea um chinese always chinese officials always say they don't have as much leverage as people think they will they will try very hard not to criticize their north korean counterparts but they will say things like they're very unique people and it means difficult to work with um and they don't want to talk too much about what they're doing because that is counterproductive vis-a-vis -vis north korea too because north korea doesn't want them to talk about it so i think by that by by dint of that simple fact i think of course there must be more going on um, China would never admit, for example, that it turned off the oil tap for three days to, to get the, the six-party talks going, but everyone else says they did. So I, I think they are doing more than they're being given credit for. Whether it will ultimately have the desired effect, I think, is still an, an open question. All we can say is Pyongyang is still talking now, and that's seen as a good thing. I'm Hal, I'm an undergrad here at Stanford. Actually, I have a question to follow up the first question about I mean, the kind of Chinese censorship. I got a newspaper for the last, uh, yesterday's New York Times. Besides reporting on the congressional hearings, there has a report in the front page from Joseph Kwan on the kind of reporting. And some senior members of the former Communist Party and scholars signed a letter to, um, condemning the government decisions to close down uh, a kind of journal and um, column, opinion column called um, Reading Point in Chinese okay. use daily. So actually my first question is like, as experienced foreign journalists in China, and what's your personal experience like, I mean, about the Chinese government's media control policy? Do you see any kind of advancement or progress in the previous, I mean, in the recent decade, or it's still, the ideology base still remains the same? That's the first question. The second, like, I think like, from the letter, which can show like, there's some kind of liberal scholars in China which have kind of different opinions than the kind of uh, I mean, authentic government, um, I mean, kind of the strong, I mean, strict control on media. It seems like, from my point of view, like many new rising Chinese journalists has been greatly influenced by the Western style of journalism, which I mean, like you can see, like many new journalists, young journalists in China, kind of seek a different way or kind of to try to have an independent role in the society in reporting and doing journalism. So what role do you think like foreign press should play um, this kind of Chinese political reform? And actually, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of, do you think like foreign press should I mean, take a lead, like let more Chinese I mean, young people know how it's the correct way to report? Since I'm thinking about mm, like many Chinese, I mean, at least, Many Chinese college students know a lot about Thomas Friedman, and many kind of New York Times columnists. I think they kind of they kind of growing different from their father's I mean, father's generation. 
the what role do you think? Sorry, sorry, it's quite a bit longer. It's a really good question, and it's a it's a hot topic. I think the situation with the Chinese media these days is very, very difficult. Um, if you accept that Chinese society, you know, just taken as a as a chunk, is moving slowly towards a more liberal direction and has been, you know, for well since market reforms began, with with a little backsliding around the time of Tiananmen. Um, or maybe a lot of black backsliding around that time, but but since then, moving forward as a chunk, within that chunk that's moving forward, the media situation kind of goes back and forth. Sometimes it's we we'd like to hope that it's two steps forward, one step back, but I think I think in recent years, the past two years, it's been more like two steps forward, one and seven eighths step back, or maybe more. Um, very difficult, but but exactly what you said, the phenomenon of people in Chinese officialdom, scholars, formal officials, retired officials, other newspaper people, editors, speaking out, and again, here's where the internet does work for them. You know, they can put some stuff out there. Sometimes it get it disappears very quickly, but at least it's out there. There are ways to have keep it out there. It's very interesting and it's very encouraging. There is actually more diversity within the Chinese bureaucracy then, and the media machine than, than we sometimes know, which, which is why I opened with the, the anecdote about the vice minister, because I think he's part of that, um, even though I, it was off the record, so I can't tell you what he said, but all I can say is very interesting thoughts going on there. As to the role of the Western media and what role it might play in Chinese political reform, I think the only thing we can do is, by example, do the best journalism we can do, um, do it well, do it often, and hope, hope that Chinese people will see it and learn from that example. If you want to go out and you know use your journalism to write a manifesto for some underground democratic movement in China, that's a different role. That's not a journalism role. That's an advocate role. It's different. Um, one shouldn't confuse these two things, but certainly as a journalist you can do a lot because as you say, they're reading the New York Times, they're, they're going online, reading Newsweek, you know, that's not blocked. Um, even on Google Lite, you know, you can find a lot of stuff. And uh, increasingly, young journalists will, and I've seen them, you know, e even in publications that are, that are not under threat of being closed, Tsai Jing, there's a magazine called China Newsweek. They do a lot of, by, by domestic Chinese standards, it's very cutting edge stuff. They have their techniques for getting around, you know, for getting out of trouble with the censors. Um, and I think it's something to watch for the future. It's very interesting. Thank you. Uh, I'm Liu from Hoover Institution. Uh, with regard to the East Asian Summit, uh, why do you think the United States should be worried about being uh, sidelined uh, without attending a single uh, European-Asian summit? Because it seems to me, uh, with this logic, the United States should uh, feel being excluded from Europe. Well, because it doesn't take part in the European Union summit as well. Uh, I, I personally am not concerned. Um, I. 
I think what I meant to say in my talk is that American officials were concerned. Uh, I, I think it's too early to even say what this East Asian Summit is all about. Um, if it's, you know, a bunch of people getting together talking about trade, financial stuff, um, and they say, well, you know, if America's there, then it's this, you know, the 600-pound gorilla, and nobody can do anything or say anything, you know, without seeing what the Americans would think. Then maybe there's a good reason for them not to be there as an active member. Um, maybe there's a way to have them there as an observer. Um, you know, Chinese officials would simply say, well, hey, you know, if Latin America wants to have a summit, they don't invite us, so why should we invite America? Which, of course, sidesteps the issue that America is a Pacific power as well. Um, so I personally am not concerned because I don't yet know what this East Asian Summit is turning out to be. If it had an obvious security, military, uh, regional security role, I think there, you know, I think Washington's concerns would be m more evident and, and, and more justified. Right now, I think people are just waiting to see what it is. And, you know, hey, you know, let's, let's, let's be frank about this. Asia is full of an alphabet soup of groupings that haven't gone very far. Um, will this one fly? We don't know yet. Maybe it will. I have a feeling it might. Um, but, you know, why get your diplomatic nose out of joint if, uh, if it remains a, just a, a benign sort of think tank, quasi-think tank kind of grouping? Because the, if you look at the countries that are members there, we're talking about a very diverse bag of nations. To get them to agree on just about anything will be very, very difficult. It's not like Europe. It's, we're not talking about a, a common cultural foundation or anything like that. Um, just the fact that they're talking together, I think, can be considered an achievement. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Yinghui Song. I'm uh, the resident scholar at the center. I have two sets of questions. One is about PANDA. The other one is about the space uh, program. The first question, um, China is offering a pair of PANDAs to Taiwan, and they decided to deliver in June. And how do you look at this issue? Should Taiwan accept that, uh, those two PANDAs? That's the first set of questions. <laughs> and second set of questions about space program. Uh, China is it decided to set up a uh, high-frequency satellite uh, station at one of the research stations in Antarctica. Uh, this, and then next year, it's going to send people to the moon, and they are going to have Chang'e Yihout. And should the United States welcome this, or should the international community welcome this? Thank you. Okay, pandas. I actually wrote a whole web column about this panda offer. Um, panda mania is very curious because, you know, I thought, I thought Westerners were bad with, with this anthropomorphization of pandas, you know. Of course, they're cute, they're cuddly, they have big eyes. Actually, it's just the fur around their eyes that makes their eyes look big. But, but the Chinese media really got into it and they were, you know, they dissected the family trees of this pair of pandas and why they were why they were so suited for each other and suited for Taiwan and everyone made sure that they would be able to have baby pandas and you know one was raised in domestic uh, uh, 
in captivity and the other was born of a wild panda mother and you know on and on and on you know what one likes to eat and what the other one likes to do um, it's this is a form of propaganda and it's a form of diplomacy and I think my only Do I think the pandas should go? I mean, I think I would also ask, is it a healthy environment for pandas in Taiwan? You know, Taiwan is, a, you know, it's not like their native environment. Um, I don't like to see some animals in zoos, but if they put together a good panda enclosure with the right temperature and the right food, treat them well, um, why not? Now, of course, Taiwan authorities have a whole different view because it's tied up with legalities um, by law China's not supposed to give pandas to any foreign country. They all can only lend them. But they're giving to Taiwan because they don't think Taiwan's a country. It's ac actually just a province, and you know, pandas are go to provincial zoos all the time. So that's, that's, that's the Trojan panda point of this. <laughs> and, um, but I, you know, for me, that's something for them to work out. I, I think that as long as they're treated humanely, you know, why not? I think Taiwanese would love to see them. And, and indeed, you know, public opinion surveys suggest that they want to see them. So if you want to be purely democratic about that, let them vote. See if they want the pandas. Space. It's a fascinating topic. Why on earth would China want to go into space, you know, to be last in space, at, you know, so long after the Soviet, the Russians, so long after the Americans, and why do, do they want to go to the moon? Um, again, the international community, every country will respond in terms of its own national interest. Again, I think China's interest in space is multifaceted, but has several elements. One, national pride, just like the Olympics are a sign of. China having arrived, going into space is, is hugely popular among the people. And, and not just mainlanders. I mean, you know, when the astronauts go to Hong Kong, they're treated like rock stars. So that has some utility to the regime. But there's also another thing. Why go to the moon? There are rocks on the moon that people have analyzed. And there are resources on the moon that might be a source of energy in the future. If, if technological achievements can bear it out. China's always looking for energy. And hey, you know, particularly when you think back to when they began this whole thing, nobody seemed interested in the moon, you know, been there, done that, forget about it. Well, hey, you know, China sees a place that no one else wants to go, they'll go, particularly if they can get something out of it. And I think this helium-3 resource up there, maybe it can be used. Um, I think other countries would, once they see that that's happening, they would also want to be there. So I think there will be a space race. Um, we, we see it happening already. Japan, Brazil, you know, new lease on life for the space program. Uh, but, but like I said, whether each country w would want it or not want it depends entirely on their own, their own interests. Um, uh, it, it's, uh, I think, one serious question would be to ask, what does America think about it? You know, why does suddenly Bush want to revive the space program? Um, does it have to do with the moon? China's China's wanting to shoot the moon, shoot for the moon. Maybe does it have to do with domination of space, with its potential for space-based uh, military applications, um, 
satellites and the whole thing? I would imagine so. Uh, I think as long as as long as China proceeds in a in a scientifically sound way, and and if they are going to go dig for something on the moon, as long as they do it in an environmentally correct way, um, hey, you know, it's a whole new frontier. But uh, my guess would be that if if a lot of people objected, that they might even reconsider. You know, they don't want a war in space. Uh, I think they're trying to make sure that if there is one that they're you know they're not completely locked out of it but but they're not looking for confrontation i think right now they they probably thought nobody else cared so why don't we we do it i mean they're doing things like sending up grass seeds into space to see what kind of mutations might you know might be usable on earth you know so they're growing these mutant vegetables like you know tomatoes like this or squash like that because they have more nutrients more carotene uh, more vitamins Maybe we can use that on Earth. So there are a lot of reasons why China wants to do this. I don't think they're all cause for worry. I'm interested in particular um, about the nascent yet speedily growing environmental movement in China. Um, but more generally, what role do you see uh, NGOs or the Chinese equivalent of NGOs um, playing a role in the growing civil society um, just through your time in China? What kinds of... Very important. You hit on a really good question there. Number one, I think NGOs are something to watch. They're at the, they're at the cutting edge of the growth of civil society in China, and there are lots of them. They're, it, it's, there's been a bit of a crackdown, as you know. One of the consequences of this con Chinese official concern about the colored revolutions is a crackdown on NGOs and, and making things more difficult for them to get registered. I, I think this probably comes straight out of the Putin guidebook on you know how to keep a lid on this stuff. Um, environmental NGOs in particular are very very interesting. Uh, they've actually succeeded in in you know putting the spotlight on some questionable practices and, and, and projects, um, and there seems to be some official support for the environmental movement, too. So that's a very potent combination. You've got not only the grassroots, NGO, civil society element, but if you've got, you know, a growing official component, too, you know, officials who really believe in environmental protection, that's a nexus that, that could have political clout um, going into the future. Okay. Thank you very much. I'd like to <coughs> introduce Hugh Shen, the director of APARC, his counterpart, Alex Jones, from the Shorenstein Center at Harvard. So it's a photo opportunity. on behalf of the, the eastern edge of this, uh, of this axis uh, <laughs> that is responsible for the Shorenstein uh, Prize. Uh, I think that uh, Stanford has it all over us when it comes to weather. There's no <laughs> uh, but we will, uh, we will look 
forward to having the prize at uh, Cambridge and Harvard next year. We alternate it back and forth. But uh, I'm sure that we will not have uh, any better recipient or more interesting talks. And I look forward to the panel tomorrow. Here, here. Thank you again. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.